welcome to the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. Listen in as co-hosts Ted Stank and Tom Goldsby take a leap onto the ships of supply chain, crowd surf into the long lines of meeting holiday demand, and wade into the depths of warehouse inventory buildup. They'll cover all the relevant and current topics blocking the canal of your minds and discuss industry issues that keep you up at night. If you enjoy the show, download and subscribe to Tennessee on Supply Chain Management, wherever you listen to podcasts. Without further ado, let's begin our show, where you'll hear what you'd least expect from the people you want to hear it from the most. Our co-hosts, Ted and Tom. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. I'm your co-host, Tom Goldsby, joined by my fellow co-host, Professor Ted Stank. Hello, Ted. Hey, everybody. What's up, Thomas? How you doing? I'm doing well. Hey, I thought a good way to get started might be to recognize that we're here at the University of Tennessee. We just sent a new legion of graduates off into the world, a lot of undergrads and graduate students. Things are a little quieter here atop Rocky Top, but it's always great to, to mark the end of one academic year and Enjoy a nice, easy summer. Hey, Ted, you got some some good plans for summer? Yeah, I do. Um, a couple of articles working on with you that we need revisions on. I have to revise our pretty popular e-textbook. And uh, we're finally, so we got three sons. We can never get them all together at the same time. For my wife's birthday, she asked that we all get together. So we're all meeting in Nashville in late July. Oh, fantastic. So cool. So cool. And I know you've got uh, that boat did get delivered, right? So you got a pretty new boat that you'll be. Yeah. Yeah. Great supply chain story. Finally came in after six months in late December and had it out this weekend. I haven't sunk it or crashed it into anything yet. So I consider (laughs) that a win. Very good, Commander. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about summer as well. And and my travel schedule's picking up, which is very exciting for me. Uh, Got down to Savannah, Georgia last week, spoke at an industry meeting and going to a few more industry meetings and, and also an academic meeting in, uh, in Milan, Italy in a few weeks. So my first travels to Europe uh, in more than two years. So it's, you know, it's starting to feel a little bit like those pre-COVID times. And hey, I saw Sir Paul, Mac- oh, I'm sorry, Lord Paul McCartney on campus last night to a jam-packed Thompson Bowling Arena here on the campus of the University of Tennessee. And- oh, you saw him at a concert. I thought like I thought he was like in our MS online program or something. No, no, he. Uh, I didn't just bump into him. He did perform a concert, and it was just great. About half Beatles tunes and half non-Beatles tunes, just just tremendous. But it, it did for those moments in time, you start to get a sense of, of normalcy. And, and Ted, that's a topic I wanted to take up with you. I think we're all hearing that question: When will we get to normal? Is there going to be such a thing called a new normal, or is there no such thing as normal? Ted, what's your read on that? If you want to take it from life, business, supply chain, wherever you want to take it. Well, you know, Tom, you and I in a Wall Street Journal article predicted that I think April 28th was going to be the return to normal, except we gave the wrong year. I think we said 2021. Right. You know, that was uh, ignoring a couple of other spikes of COVID and a couple of big countries are at war right now. I don't think we saw that coming either. The new normal is... I want to use a Navy phrase, but it uses a curse word that I can't use. But stand by, right? Just buckle yourself in because the the new normal is constant change. I don't know if you saw the news, but the folks in Shanghai were down along their waterfront celebrating because they have finally been 
almost fully opened up and fully opened up beyond their celebrations means their manufacturing is going to get back to full roar. And that means they're going to be processing a whole bunch of back orders and putting them in containers and sending them down the road to the port of Shanghai to go on ships to come predominantly to Europe and the United States, where we're already still having congestion and expect to see, you know, another 120 ships off the port of L.A. Long Beach in another uh, six weeks or so. Demand is doing different things. You know, we're seeing inflation. It's slowing demand in some market areas, but not in others. Um, Housing is cooling off a little bit because of mortgage rates going up, but we're really not sure what's what's happening there. We're seeing services uptick and goods down ticking. We're seeing a lot of the orders that have been placed over the last eight months finally hitting retail shelves. And so inventory to sales ratios are ticking up. It doesn't mean that we have the right stuff, but we have stuff somewhere. And probably it's showing that we have it in the wrong places because our planning processes are not up to speed with all the kinds of variation. So a long way to say there is no new normal. If we're not planning for constant fluctuation and variation in both demand and supply, then we are closing our eyes and whistling past the graveyard. Yeah, you're absolutely right, I think. And it underscores that work we've been doing these last couple of years on supply chain agility and really broader business resilience is, is just so essential. And, you know, developing those muscles, if you will. Uh, of course, we've been focused in a lot, not only on supply chain configuration, redesign and changing operations, but also altering planning processes as well. But we'll maybe save that for our guests uh, to come in a little bit later to talk about that. But that R word is introducing itself from time to time, recession and, and supply chains being blamed for recession. You know, I've always spoken of supply chains being a derived business as economies and markets go, well, that creates demand for supply chain activity. But there's a lot of suggestion that inflation and perhaps even recessionary forces, that supply chains are to blame for those things, which is a little bit of an about turn on on a lot of things. I've been getting some media requests to comment on that. And I'll have to admit, you know, I I think there is some impetus there, but uh, I really still believe that supply chains really react to what the market demand is. Now, granted, if you have shortages, and people still want the goods, that's going to raise prices. Um, that's inflation. It could also mean that people get turned off or, or we lose opportunities. We lose economic activity, which, you know, that's that's what recession is. So, Ted, what's your read on, on the recession and that that our term? Well, first of all, a, uh, a dodge. I'm not an economist, right? But I have stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. I think recession is a real, real possibility in the near future. I wouldn't say supply chains are responsible if we hit a recession. They're part of the whole calculus of what brings us into a recession. But, you know, mass economics is more than anything a behavioral science, right? I mean, it's economic, it's it's operational, but it's also behavioral and it's how people feel about things. And, you know, I don't think you can understate the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war. You know, over the weekend, the European Union just said that they're going to stop taking deliveries of Russian oil. They'll still take it by pipeline, but 70% of Russian oil is not going to be received. So what does that mean? It means that 70% of Russian oil is no longer going to be on the market, which means the Europeans have to get it from somewhere else, which means there's yet more of a demand and supply imbalance. And we're probably going to see even increasing rates at the gas pump this summer. I mean, it's already mid $4. It's probably going to go higher. 
what does that do to consumer psyche? Right now we're still spending, but as we start seeing those kind of things tick up, I mean, the market is already showing a lot of distrust about where we're headed, at least in the in the short to midterm, a lot of pain in the market. Um, will consumer sentiment follow that? If it does, then yeah, we're going to be in a recession. Yeah. You know, there are just a few of those metrics. You and I rely on on a bevy, a lot of different metrics, but the average consumer relies on a critical few, right? And it's it's what they're buying at the grocery store when they see those prices going up and fuel uh, is is a major one. And I think you're right. I think there's a pretty strong correlation probably between that fuel price and general sentiment outlook. With regard to travel, you're right. I, I don't know if you've traveled, but you know, tuck in your elbows because they are just cramming us into those planes. And it's like, hey, didn't you take some planes out of the air, uh, airlines, when we went into recession? You get those planes back up in the air and give us a little bit of room to breathe up here. But I thought I saw where Southwest airfares went up 32% in the first quarter, which is just incredible. Speaking of kind of corporate earnings and things of that nature, you know, the first quarter earnings came out and top lines seemed to still be very robust, particularly among many retailers. But meanwhile, bottom lines were disappointing. That just means that they're loaded with you know higher costs, probably at every line item throughout the income statement there. You know, one line item that they've been willing to spend more of late has been inventory. You mentioned the IS ratio, the inventory to sales ratio earlier. That's one of those metrics you and I pay very close attention to. They seem to be suggesting maybe they're getting a little bit bloated on inventory, even though it's all about trying to stock those shelves at any expense, it seemed, to try to deliver on behalf of the customer. But maybe they're starting to feel a little bit of pain there. And there was a Wall Street Journal article that we shared around last week that said, American stores have too much of the wrong stuff. And I think, you know, like Target was suggesting they've got too much big bulky stuff, taking up a lot of space in their stores and their warehouses. And it's not necessarily moving like it was, say, a year ago or a few months back. Yeah, that's interesting. And that may be because of understandings from the demand side, they got some of the wrong products. I would say that given that inventory to sales ratio, I think the latest number was March. It's 1.16. The average over the last 12 years is 1.4. So we're still below what the average has been. But if we have the wrong stuff in the wrong place, which is a common thing in supply chain, then we got either got to move it or eat loss of sales. So challenge is there. Speaking of shelves and not having stuff, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't at least briefly talk about what you think happened with this baby food shortage. As far as I know, the most stable demand in the world should be demand for baby food, right? I mean, it grows at the rate that we had birthed babies. And so not a lot of variation, pretty easy to predict. And yet we have stores with absolutely zero stock on the shelves. That's a supply chain issue, Tom. What's your what's your take, read on that? Yeah, I, I hear you. And I, I agree. I mean, for many years, as we talk about supply chain planning, we teach it, you know, we give examples like diapers and baby formula and, and things. And it's like, as you point out, demand for those items should be very closely tracked with birth rates. And it does seem that certainly supply chains are out of whack. There was that Sturgeon, Michigan, Abbott plant that, that went offline with a recall. And that, as I understand it, that was a major producer uh, serving the U.S. And hence, we've had to call upon some international supplies to help uh, buttress. And also, I, I seem to recall that a lot of these products had an incubation period as well. I don't know if this particular line of product did or not, but I know a lot of those nutritional lines of products, you can't just produce it and ship it out. You know, that's actually got to store for a while before it can be sold. 
Uh, and so that means longer lead times and just that much more time before we can respond to changes. But I also do have to point out the demand picture here. And I, I saw very early in this crisis, going back about six weeks, going back to late March, early April. And I think that this was kind of building up even before then around the time of the recall that Abbott had in place was that sales were up 18%. And that was very early in the crisis. So that suggests that there was a run on this stuff. And there might've been some of that hoarding behavior going on before the retailers had to put this stuff behind lock and key or just suggest, hey, you know, no more than a couple of cases at a time. And so I do think this is a product with very high emotional content. You know, a lot of young parents can't imagine being without the formula, understandably. But I do think there's one hoarding <laughs> and also a lot of opportunistic activity, a lot of gray market activity that could be going on around these products. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on that. And I hadn't thought about that aspect of it. Certainly, if I had an infant, I'd want a whole ton of baby formula if I thought we were going to have stockouts and shortages. Toilet paper, baked beans, and baby formula. There you go. But you can't ignore the supply chain side of things. I mean, way, way, way back when I was taking supply chain courses and we were starting to say, well, you know, 300 suppliers of a particular commodity is probably too much, but one is probably too few. I mean, I think it does show that we've gone to the extreme in trying to find efficiencies. When one plant in the United States shuts down, that we have these outages across our entire network suggests to me that our networks and supply chain need some rethinking, not only domestically, but globally. A little element of redundancy might go a long way. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, that adds cost, right? But I think that our entire perspective on global network design needs to be rethought. I'd like to bring in somebody now that I'm really, really excited to have with us, an old friend of mine. I don't mean to imply he's old, although we both are old, but a longtime friend of mine, Bill Simon. He and I were ensigns in the Navy together way back in the early 80s. I decided to change careers and um, become a professor, and Bill decided to change careers and become CEO of Walmart North America, um, which my wife will never let me forget. But um, Bill and I have been in touch over the years, and he has lived a lot of these supply chain challenges. Bill has been gracious enough to join us. Um, Bill, welcome. Hey, guys. What's going on? We're good. We're good. You've been listening in to some of the stuff we've been talking about. What's your take on this, Bill? Is there a new normal coming? Is there some kind of stability coming? What's your thought on global network design and domestic and regionalization? You and I have talked about this some in the past. I think your your last comment, Ted, is is really interesting. We have to rethink global supply chains. You know, over the last 20 or 30 years, we've done everything we could possibly do to engineer costs out of the supply chain. Well, rightly so, right? We extended them all the way around the world. You know, we had relatively cheap fuel. We had relatively cheap labor, primarily in Asia. And we had no concept that we would have disruptions of COVID and anything like that. And so we, we engineered the supply chain to a razor's edge. It was so efficient, particularly at Walmart. It was one of our pride and joys, right? We had the best supply chain in the world, we thought. And it was down to, you know, we, we used to brag about how little inventory we, we had to carry. And then we shut it all off. One day, we flipped the switch. Stop. Nobody move anything. Well, we didn't design our supply chain for that. And then we turned it all back on and expected it to work again. With consumers having even more money in their pockets. Correct. And they couldn't go to a restaurant. Pent up demand 
turn it back on and expect it to work again. Well, what was in the supply chain got completely sucked out. It created that consumer-driven demand, panic. Clearly, there was no more need for toilet paper than the day before. When, in fact, I was on CNBC when it first started saying, no, don't worry, there's plenty of toilet paper. Our butts will be safe. But you know, the thing that's not predictable is consumer demand. And now here we are trying to find our way forward. And, and I think what we'll have to do is create normal. We have to have a different perspective on buffer stock. We'll have to have a different perspective on the labor transportation formula that goes into the development and design of a supply chain, because all that's fundamentally changed. Yeah. And, and to your point, uh, you know, consumers are changing as well. And I, I have to say, during your tenure at, at Walmart, you not only witnessed incredible change among consumers, but you also uh, actuated it. You made it happen. And, and it's something I was really keen to watch, continue to be keen to watch, is serving what I call the diabolical consumer. We want everything. We want it now. We want it at a competitive price. We want it delivered free and we want no questions asked, hassle-free returns. And, and that's an area in which, you know, during your time at Walmart, you all were just experimenting just nonstop and continuing. What have you witnessed in the way of the changing consumer Beyond just you know pulling into the parking lot of a big old superstore and filling up a shopping cart and walking out, what do you think today's consumer looks like? What do they expect? It's really interesting. You know, we went through this e-commerce you know run up. We were all in our houses. We all sat and ordered from Amazon and Walmart, and they brought it to us, and that was the only way we could get stuff. Well, guess what happened? It finally ripped the bandaid off, and everybody realized, they already knew it, the, the people that were doing it, that you can't make money doing that. You can't make money shipping a box of cornflakes. Take a box of cornflakes, put it in another box, give it to a UPS guy and have him bring it to your house. It doesn't work. And so, you know, it was this race to two day, one day, same day, two hours, drones. And, you know, they're still playing with it. But in reality, what we saw in the last quarter of retail was flat digital e-commerce sales and growing physical retail sales. So there's this, again, this creation of what normal is. I don't expect e-commerce to decline any, but it's also hard now, you know, as a Prime member on Amazon, you're like, hey, I thought I could get that next day or same day. Now all of a sudden they're telling me a week from Tuesday and it's on Prime and they're doing that. What's hey, the thing here? Anecdotally, Bill, I've, I have a ton of different medications, unfortunately, and I get them filled at CVS. And for the last two years, I would get this text saying, hey, your your prescription's ready and click here and we'll deliver it for free. And I would always be like, well, yeah, you know, my closest CVS is two miles from my house. But if you're going to give it to me for free in my mailbox, then yeah, that's one less trip I have to make. Starting about a month ago, I'd click on that and they say, yeah, we'll deliver it to you five bucks. And I'm like, all of a sudden, well, no, I'll make that two mile drive to my local CVS, you know. Well, I think that's what's happening, right? Is that now, like everything's shaken out, the supply chain is recalculating that labor now is, you know, 18, 20, $22 an hour. So it, it's not the same. Fuel costs are <laughs> driving that up. So everything's got to be redone. Unfortunately, you build a distribution center or a distribution network and you can't change on a dime like what's happening. And that's why I think we saw in the retail reports recently, you know, Walmart reported 35% increase in inventory over last year, 35. Do you have any idea how much that is in 
dollars or containers. I mean, I was on CNBC that day and I go, that's like apocalyptic number, mm-hmm. right? Typically retail, they try to grow inventory at half the rate of sales. That would be the objective. Well, well it seems like we've reached something of a tipping point. And Bill, what you've described is, again, this pursuit of the consumer almost at any cost. And I think we've recognized that those costs are exorbitant. In fact, at UT over the last couple of years, we've undertaken a project that we call the Economics of last mile logistics. And it just portrays exactly what you said. And it all started with us scratching our heads going, how can anyone hope to make money doing this? And I think you kind of underscore that the, the margin wasn't wasn't there, particularly when you consider so much of that stuff gets returned as well. And the burden continues. And so that's what we're undertaking now with some research in our advanced supply chain collaborative. But it seems like we're asking the consumer, hey, now that you know what this thing is called supply chain, is there any chance you might meet us halfway? Or is there any chance you might meet us back at our stores? And it's also incredible. To see, it seems like the build out of Amazon warehouses is finally kind of tempering, slowing down. Like maybe they've got that saturation for two-day delivery. Uh, maybe getting inside of two days is just nonsensical maybe in so many parts of, of this big old country. Yeah, you know, gosh, Bill, it was what, 10, 15 years ago, you and I talked about Omnichannel and how does Walmart, you know, really get to Omnichannel. And if you look at the way Walmart is operating today, it's kind of delivered on that dream that you talked about, you know, way back when that you, know, you can pull into a Walmart and get something taken out to your car, or you can go in to do the Walmart online. I've done that experience. It's fantastic where you order it in advance and you go in and there's a locker where your product is and you just pick it up and take it out. Or you can do Walmart delivered to your house. But consumers, I think, have to wake up to the realization that all of those different time and place characteristics have a cost and you got to make a choice. You know, it's like me with my med, you know, do I want to pay $5 to get it in my mailbox or do I want to get in my car and drive two miles and pick it up? One of the things you got to look at, and, and I think this is really fundamentally what's changed is for, gosh, 10 years, the last 10 years, Wall Street was rewarding top line sales. It, at Amazon, is the poster child for it, right? Grow 30%, make no money, but promise one day you'll make money. Shareholders are rewarded. So they keep buying the stock. And so Amazon keeps losing money and building out a network that, you know, in the end, everybody believes will make money. And here we are reaching the point. And the reason I think things are changing is because Wall Street's now punishing them for not delivering profit. Again, Walmart and Target both had really decent top line performances last quarter but missed their bottom line pretty substantially and just got clobbered. So that's what's, I think, driving change. And when you do your analysis on the last mile, take a look at what's happened into the share price, and you'll probably see what what's driving some of the change in these companies. Man, I love to hear you talking profit. You know, back in, in the early days, Bill, when he left the Navy, was a marketer, and he and I used to get into late night arguments about what was the appropriate metric. Was it market share or was it something else? And as a marketer, you know, it was all about that growth, that top line growth. So I guess once you move into a, a business unit manager's job, that changes, huh? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, let's pivot for a second, Bill. You know, again, several years ago, we talked about the foolhardiness of, uh, you know, I I was somebody who kind of rolled my eyes when old Ross Perot back in the early 90s talked about the great sucking sound of manufacturing going to Asia Pacific. And I think maybe today those 
chickens have come home to roost. Um, you were a big champion a few years back that we were going to get caught with this run to manufacturing all offshore. What, what are your thoughts today about what might be happening with that and what changes we might see in the next few years? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've always looked at it logically, right? And it's a math equation. And consumer demand needs to be satisfied in the most efficient way it can be. And it's most efficient to make and produce products closest to the point of consumption. And now there's some variance, you know, in that, in that depending on the, you know, the labor component and the cost component, you know, that go into a product, you, you can make different decisions. Capital is agnostic to geography. So build a factory here, build a factory there, put a machine in here, put a machine in there, no difference. And so it's it's labor and transportation and raw materials that are the, the components. And 10 years ago at Walmart, we figured out it was going to be less money to find a way to build large, cube, bulky product in the U.S. rather than ship it from Asia. There's not a lot of labor in it. Raw materials are readily available here. And so we, we tried to help encourage manufacturers to be able to do that. Microchips, not so much, right? They're tiny. They're little T-shirts with a lot of cut and sew, not so much. They need to be produced in low labor markets. So that's really where I think we got to take a look at things. There's no panacea. There's no There's no answer. Here's a product line. Where's the consumer demand? What's the most efficient way to get it to market? Sometimes it's Asia and sometimes it's right next door. Yeah, boiling it down to its essence. You, you've got a way of making incredibly complex phenomena very uh, accessible, Bill. So that's, that's fantastic. And you know, you do mention semiconductors, right? And there have been a few areas. It's like, okay, naturally it may not make sense, but given our dependence on these things and how we find ourselves hamstrung, you know, maybe government needs to step up and subsidize. We need to invest. You know, what are your thoughts in terms of big government expenditures, maybe in select areas like semiconductors, some rare minerals, uh, healthcare products that we, in which we found ourselves hamstrung uh, going into the pandemic. What, what are your thoughts around government getting more involved in our supply chains? Yeah, you probably hit a sore point with me. I'm, you know, I'm a closet libertarian. I don't think government does anything better than the private sector. So anything that they get involved in will end up like the post office, as far as I'm concerned. And so, yeah, I think that there's probably a real solid reason to manufacture the things that are critical to our infrastructure here in the U.S., but I think we're going to have to pay more for it. I don't think it can be subsidized or managed by the government. I think we're just going to have to fess up to the fact that some things are going to cost more money because you know we're, we're going through this difficulty right now of access. You got your boat, Ted. I, I haven't got my, I ordered one of those Ford Broncos back like two years ago when they first came out. And I think mine's sitting on a lot, getting covered with snow in Michigan, waiting for a chip or whatever it is. I, you know, I don't even want it anymore. <laughs> wow. Well, Bill, I don't want to wear out our welcome with you. This has been great. It was, again, it's so great to have you join us. I do have one more question for you. Since your time with Walmart, you've embarked on a new career and you are now a racehorse owner. Horse by the name of Barbara Road raced in the Kentucky Derby and you got him in the upcoming Belmont. What are Barbara Road's chances? Uh, we're going to win, man. There's no question about it. If I didn't believe it, you know, I wouldn't be spending the money to get him there. You know, I wanted to buy the New York Yankees, but somebody already owned them and I didn't have enough money. So I bought a couple horses and that's my 
foray into professional sports. It's fascinating. I've always been a numbers person and I traded spreadsheets and P&Ls for racing forms and pedigrees. And so I study them the way I did P&Ls. And, uh, you know, here we are with a horse in the Kentucky Derby. We ran six. He ran a good race. Uh, he got stuck in the back of the pack and ended up going way wide on the on the home stretch. He's a closer, and Belmont's a long race. It's a mile and a half longer than the Kentucky Derby, so I think we've got a good chance. Yeah, he proved he could go the distance, and like I said, with such a strong finish despite being uh, back in the pack and having to work wide and, and uh, had a really strong home stretch run. So we'll, we'll be watching, and uh, Ted and I just might put a, put a little wager down on it too. Yeah, a funny story. My wife Lori and I were watching Barbara Road so closely and went from from you know way outside 14th and finished sixth and was finishing hard, closing hard, that we were so focused on Barbara Road that when the race ended, we heard the announcers going, That's incredible, that's the most amazing finish. And we hadn't even realized that this other horse who was 21st out of 20 horses ended up coming from behind and winning. We had to watch it over again. Yeah, I was there and I didn't realize it. Yeah, and you probably didn't have the benefit of seeing the repeats like we did on TV. No, I was just too busy uh, picking myself up off the floor. Yeah, I can imagine the adrenaline rush of the whole thing. Well, Bill, um, you know, any final thoughts uh, supply chain-wise? Will we hit a new normal? And and we'll let you have the final word and then we'll close out. Well, I'll tell you what, you you guys were talking about recession earlier on. I think the thing to watch for a recession, whether we're going to go into a recession, is the labor markets. We've never had a full employment recession in the country ever. So as long as employment holds and wages are going up, it's going to be difficult for us to go into a recession. So keep an eye on that, and that'll be the leading indicator. Jobs report just came out, 11.4 million new jobs. I know. It's crazy, huh? Wow. It's just crazy. Wow. I want to find out, maybe we need to get Marianne Wanamaker on here again, Tom. Where the heck are all these people? Like, I just read that um, summertime swimming pools can't open up because they can't find high school kids to be lifeguards. That's a tough one to automate, apparently, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Maybe that is a post-retirement career for me. Get out the zinc oxide and the SPF 50. I think I I see your future there, Ted. I have a hard time jumping down from the chair, though. (laughs) All right, guys. Hey, thank you so much. Um, Bill, once again, thanks a lot for sharing your time and insights with us. Always great talking to you. Tom, I'll be talking to you again soon. In fact, I think we have a meeting this afternoon. And everybody, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, If you have questions, comments, suggestions for speakers, please feel free to reach us at gsci at utk.edu. Thanks again, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. listening to Tennessee on supply chain management. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe via your favorite listening platform, such as iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions, we'd love to hear from our listeners. Leave a reply in our show notes at gscipodcast.com or email your questions to gsci at utk.edu. Join us next time in our pursuit to prove that supply chain management is more fun than you think. 